Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of the Hoban Law Group, uh, talking to you today from somewhat sunny Northbrook, Illinois. Uh, we have a very, very exciting show for uh, all of our listeners today. We hope you'll stick around. Uh, in addition to the usual cast of characters, uh, my co-host, Jim Marty of Bridge West, based out in uh, uh, Longmont, and Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings, based in San Diego, and I'll give them a chance to say hi in a minute. Uh, we also have an exceptional guest today, Noah Potter, uh, a uh, an attorney uh, in the cannabis space is where I first met Noah, and uh, he uh, also has a strong interest in uh, all things psychedelic as they relate to uh, psychedelic law, psychedelic everything, uh, legal marketing and strategizing and miscellaneous, as he likes to say. Uh, so we're excited to have him on. Uh, but let's get started. We have a lot of great Grateful Dead stuff to talk about, some big anniversaries of some shows, some some old, some even older. But let me start off by joining in first with uh, my co-host, Jim Marty from Colorado. Jim, how are you doing today? Very good. I'm in a very good mood because uh, we broke through yesterday and got our tickets for Mexico in January. Dead and company. Congratulations. I'm still on the wait list, but I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. I figure if you and Hoban are in, it's just a matter of time. I got to get there too. So uh, good for you. And uh, from California, Rob Hunt. Rob, how are you today? I'm terrific, Larry. Thanks for asking. And uh, another big week in cannabis. So excited to discuss that and all things Grateful Dead. Beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, let's dive right in. I think that uh, we've got so much to talk about with Noah today that I'd kind of like to start there. We can circle back around to our our cannabis stuff and our uh, Grateful Dead stuff in a few minutes. Noah, psychedelic law. You know, everybody thinks that, that, you know, those of us that are in cannabis law are kind of like cutting edge. But psychedelic law has kind of really taken it to the next level. What got you there and what's driving you to do it? And, and tell us a little bit about what you do exactly in that field. Well, thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Larry. And uh, thanks for having me. Pleasure to meet everybody. Uh, gee, well, um, 2010 came around and I was going through some, uh, through some life changes and someone uh, serendipis- serendipitously met on the train said, oh, you should create a blog. I said, a blog? Hmm, okay. And my office mate said, sure, I know how to make a blog. Here you go. Here's a blogger blog. And I said, great. What am I going to call this thing? I said, hmm, hmm, hmm psychedelic law because we need one i mean there kind of is one but people don't know it it know there's one so let's just name the thing there's a law of psychedelics there's a law of everything fundamentally you know you and i know that everything in the world is classified as some kind of law one thing or another and uh but you just got to give a name to it there's aviation law there's maritime law there's contract law there's matrimonial law you get like securities and derivatives and options etc etc you got tax law it's like there's this thing called psychedelics. There's this phenomena called psychedelics that is stuck in the law. It's embedded in this bad place in the law. So until we trim away, peel away, like unearth this thing, like, you know, find all of mycelium or like some kind of concept like that, or, you know, pull out, I don't know why you want to pull out the root of the, the, the truffles, but whatever, pull out the fungus. And dust it off and see what this thing is. And that was my goal in coining the term psychedelic law. I don't know. Is that helpful? I mean, I can go into more specifics, but... Well, no. I, well, why don't you tell us what are you doing specifically professionally right now within the uh, umbrella of what you're calling psychedelic law? So, truth to tell, I mean, I, I'm in the practice of law. I do law stuff. But 
my focus in psychedelics policy and law, et cetera, is advocacy in New York. I have uh, co-founded an uh, advocacy group called New Yorkers for Mental Health Alternatives, uh, the goal of which is to effectuate pro progressive psychedelic law reform in New York State. Um, so right now I'm in an advocacy space. I have been blogging at Psychedelic Law for the last, I don't know, 10 years or so to try to provide you know, offer fundamental principles of what psychedelic law is. Um, but in terms of my, the, the act of non-legal work, regard, and, uh, the psychedelic stuff is going on in an advocacy space to evolve psychedelic law in practice. Who are you representing? I mean, what type of individuals, groups, uh, specific, where did, where, who, who, who needs a psychedelic attorney? Besides all of us. Well, okay, Larry, so you want to get into it. So the, the, that goes to what's in the psychedelic space. What's in the, you know, you can call it spaces a little bit fruity, perhaps. Um, there's psychedelic market that's kind of like not quite right. That's problematic in some ways for a lot of people. Um, there's psychedelic sectors, like, okay. Um, but I'm thinking in terms of a psychedelic economy. And there are different people who inhabit that space there. And those people are not necessarily talking to each other, probably not to a large extent. They probably, a lot of them don't like each other. It's a, it's a, it's a strange Venn diagram. The space in which, the place I've been occupying is on the state and local level de decriminalization work. Uh, I, part of what I've done uh, relates to Denver. I... I assisted the executive di uh, director of the Decriminalize Denver campaign in 2018 uh, at an early stage of the campaign, which was assisting him uh, and, by extension, the campaign with getting approved the language of the ballot initiative, uh, shaping it up something the Denver Board of Elections would accept because the, the activists had not succeeded on, I think, two occasions. And so next go-round and... Um, and, and, uh, that's, you know, that's how I came into it. It's basically the place I want to be in advocacy. Um, and it's kind of gone from there. So I've been in, in, you know, at this point, networked in with that level of advocacy, with that, that zone in the psychedelic economy or psychedelic sector. There's also a researcher population. There are the, the people that I guess have come up along with, you know, kind of in tandem with MAPS, with the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, that population of researchers that brought psychedelics back into light and made the psychedelic renaissance happen by providing data, creating a buzz, reestablishing this field. Um, they're doing their thing. They're in research institutions. They are, I trust, net, you know, involved with, affiliated with the pharmaceutical companies, the psychedelic pharmaceutical companies, and, and who are linked with the psychedelic sector investors. Now, therein you have, you know, then, then you have the, the people working in the ceremonial and sacramental realm. And there's, I think, a pretty strong overlap there in that, between that space and the decriminalization space, the state and local level. Um, and, you know, Larry, between, you know, between you and me and the attorney world, um, 
that it, there's there. I like to, I break it up between people who are going for FDA approval and people who are, don't care about FDA approval. Like just like in the medical cannabis space and in the I mean more in the medical cannabis space. That's the closer analogy. Medical cannabis laws, you know, st- licensees under state law, manufacturers, distributors don't care about the FDA. It's like irrelevant. They're doing their own thing. So similarly, there's a population of activists who have made, made Denver happen, made Oakland happen, made Santa, Santa Cruz happen, Ann Arbor, uh, three different jurisdictions in Massachusetts, Massachusetts. They're actively working in New York as well. Um, and then you have the people who are going full on through the federal system, um, going the, the pharmaceutical route that cannabis has not been able to go and probably can't go for certain reasons. So all of those people need lawyers in some capacity. And I'm, <laughs> right. I, I, I'm not going in, I don't think I'm going, I, I don't know what would happen for me to go to the FDA side, to that, to the medical world. I don't know, it could be. I'm in a, I'm in a different sector doing the advocacy work. So, no. what are some of the um, medical um, uses or benefits of uh, psychedelic substances? So, I'm going to say, with caveats, the, 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 the discourse, we'll call it that, because there's multiple facets to it, around psychedelics, talk about uses in treating substance abuse, um, and, and that would include nicotine, includes alcohol, um, a big topic of conversation is um, P- PTSD, um, anxiety, depression, tr- uh, treatment-resistant depression. <sighs> a- anxiety is 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 interesting, uh, particularly with regard to the geriatric population. Well, I shouldn't geriatric and others right, in the in the zone of more mortality where none of us are exempt. Um, but it's uh, applications for end-of-life anxiety, end-of-life distress. Um, that's a big one. There's like, I think that's like a 7 billion person population, you know, consumer sector, maybe. So, uh, yeah, it's expansive. And, and that's why there's so much buzz. That's why people are going around talking about this psychedelics of the new cannabis. And you have a, 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 a bubbling, boiling psychedelic investment press, um, uh, advisory platforms, and stock trackers in for regarding psychedelics and what um state is the research in how far along is the research into these various benefits of psychedelics i i don't know if i i was kind of hoping you weren't going to ask me something like that (laughs) because that's actually a zone which i need to to dig a little bit more for the purposes of moving forward on on one of the two tracks that my advocacy group does i'm going to need to boil that down and really like you know focus it in uh, suffice it to say that um, there are phase three clinical trials of MDMA uh, for PTSD. That's my, my recollection of where MAPS is. Um, there are there, there are just so many clinical trials going, sponsored so many different pharmaceutical companies. Uh, I think a bunch of there there are studies in, in in phase two clinical trials. Yeah, I mean they're they're administering in. Um, in human subjects. So you're in two and you're in three. You're out of one. Um, in terms of volume, in terms of, I mean, if you want to know if anything's gone through the FDA, all the way through the FDA approval process and is applying for its NDA, 
Um, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think uh, farthest along are maps and compass pathways, I think. But again, this is, this is, we got to talk about this later because I'm going to have to drill down into this. I've been doing decriminalization for the last like eight months or so, and now I'm going to have to get real serious into the psychedelic assisted therapy side. So, no, I remember when the cannabis movement first got off the ground and people were talking about medicinal cannabis. In many ways, you know, now that we've actually watched the industry go through the evolution that it has, you know, cannabinoids are certainly used for therapeutic purposes, and there's no doubt that cannabinoids have um, efficacious qualities to them. But ultimately, the legalization movement was about adult use recreational cannabis, and now we're really, you know, seeing that happen. And a lot of the things that people said early on of this being this, you know, camel's nose under the tent um, was largely true, and most of us in the industry knew that at the time. It was just getting people acclimated to the idea that cannabis is a, a substance that shouldn't be uh, criminalized in the first place. With psychedelics, you know, sort of the same idea. You know, I, I love psychedelics from a recreational standpoint. I used them recreationally for years, whether it was, you know, mushrooms or LSD or MDMA. You know, I was happy to take all sorts of substances um, in a non-clinical setting. Do you think that this whole movement is uh, is largely following the same path, that, you know, this, this early days of, quote, medical psychedelics is just a gateway to uh, adult use legalization? Uh, well, thank you for all that. First, let me say, in terms of the relationships between substances, you know, I, I have a whole lot of blog posts banging around in my head, desperate to get out, that can't get out because there's other stuff that needs to be done first. But one of the next ideas I hope to articulate is that fundamentally, the whole thing is one big mistake with a lot of little pieces. And by that, I mean drug prohibition. I mean, criminal prohibition of psychoactive substances outside of alcohol, nicotine, um, uh, caffeine, and then the whole spectrum of pharmaceuticalized substances. Um, so, I mean, that acro is across the board, and that's why there's a burgeoning you know, all-drug decriminalization movement coming fast. Um, having said that, so there's a special relationship between cannabis and psychedelics, in my, in my assessment. And on a very simple, objective level, the, the, this, the federal, stag, the federal schedules, and the one I'm with which I'm familiar, which is New York state schedules, puts cannabis in as a, quote, hallucinogen. So it's in the same part of the law that where you, you've housed LSD, MDMA, which itself is a question as to why it's in there as an amphetamine, um, uh, DMT, mescaline, uh, etc. So... There is a certain kind of, uh, there's an overlap. And I, I would say that a, a strong cannabis edible should be deemed a, a, well, a psychedelic substance, at least in terms of a paradigm of delayed onset, very, very uh, powerful change in cognition uh, and mood um, and, and long lasting. Um, but cannabis partakes of multiple qualities. And I, I guess there, the psychedelic phenomena, and I'm gonna leave aside distinctions between MDMA and an acid and, and psilocybin, for example. Um, they're, all, they're, hybrid, they're hybrid entities, they're hybrid products. And I quote myself in saying that fundamentally a psychedelic substance, the bottom line in psychedelic law is it's a good that travels in interstate commerce. It's a consumer product that travels in interstate commerce that's subject to various considerations relating to risk and benefit. Um, but each, neither one fits neatly into the existing categories. You have cannabis as a food, a medicine, and a euphoriant. Like, how does that work? Because you have foods over here, and then you have 
drugs over there. Once in, in law world, once you have two terms, it implies that they're different phenomena in some way. So, but this is a, the question for cannabis, well, is it a food or is it a drug? And the answer is yes. So it doesn't work. And psychedelics similarly have hybrid, as a, have hybrid qualities. It is a hybrid phenomena because they can partake of a sacramental uh, practice. They can partake of a um, medical practice. They can partake of a uh, wellness practice. And they can take, partake of a something maybe like a euf the euphoriant aspect of cannabis. But the sacramental one is a knockout. That, you know, cannabis is, has continuously failed. Nobody's been able to, to my knowledge, get a religious exemption for cannabis of some kind. The courts just swat that down. Psychedelics have done that um, for a variety because of qualitatively different legal issues. Now, what does that mean to your question about adult, adult use? I don't know what that means with a psychedelic. I mean, you have, I mean, how do you do a, quote, recreational dose of a, like, I, I just don't even understand what that means. I don't think that that paradigm works for psychedelics. I think that you could, if you're looking at psychedelics as a consumer, model, as a consumer product, I think that, I don't think things are going to go well. I think that's a bad idea, personally. I mean, you're gonna like you're gonna like market. You're gonna like try to increase market share of your psilocybin product with billboards and like celebrity endorsements. No, I agree completely, Noah. You know, my opinions are, you know, upwards of 20% of the adult population enjoys cannabis. When you get into other drugs like psychedelics, you're getting down to one percent of one percent of one percent. So there really is no market share. So two things. One. Um, I, I don't know the numbers. I have, I've seen a study, um, which is somewhere on my, open on my browser, that actually calculates, describes a, a, a fairly high number. I was talking about 10% of the U.S. population has taken, as is, is ingested a psychedelic substance sometime. And I, that's excluding cannabis, is the best of my recollection. I mean, if you think about the MDMA phenomena, if you think about the rave phenomena, and you're, you're treating, you are going with this colloquial terminology, including MDMA as a, as, a, as a psychedelic, I can see that as being a pretty good chunk of the population. I don't think it's that, pop, well, population use size is worth considering if you look at the idea of mass marketing, like a pharmaceutical, like uh, some of these pharmaceutical companies, the psychedelic pharmaceutical companies get their way and they take a product and they get they, through the clinical trials and they get FDA approval. Uh, I mean, is that going to end up on television? Are they going to be marketing as like, hey, come here, fix your depression? So you, you, may be, you may be looking at a huge market share. And that's why they're talking about hundreds of billions of dollar valuation of the, of the psychedelic. No, seriously, there are hundreds of millions of dollars pouring into the psychedelic companies. Absolutely, they're going public. But, but at, the, by, at the same time, you know, I, I, I can't speak for decriminalized nature because I'm not a decriminalized nature person. But my understanding of their perspective is there are hundreds of millions of people that could benefit from, from naturally occurring, from, from mushrooms, from psychedelic mushrooms, from ayahuasca. Uh, I don't know how you do iboga because of it's like, you know, somewhat like endangered status in West Africa. So I don't know how you're going to do iboga. It's, it's a lot of fun to do, though. Well, I, I think it's great. Okay, listen, I, I have an epilepsy diagnosis, so that's an exclusion criteria, and I don't know if I'll ever make it there, but I understand it's good. So, 
I think we're on the same page. Um, I would agree with you that probably 10% of the adult population has done a psychedelic once or twice, but that does not make a consumer product. When I say consumer product, I'm speaking in a kind of a, like I'm speaking like a lawyer or trying to speak like a lawyer. I'm trying to like, this thing appears in the law. It's a thing you get. It's a thing you get. It's not a service. It's not real property. It's not intellectual property. It's the thing. You take it, you put it into your carnate corporeal body. It's this like carnate thing you touch, you put it in and you get it from somewhere. It grows out of the ground. It grows in your little mushroom cultivator. Uh, it comes out of somebody's like, you know, beakers. Um, so you're buying the thing or you're getting or you're going, you're partaking in a ceremony and it's being provided to you, it's being administered to you. Um, so in that sense, it's a thing that changes hands. So when I say consumer product, I don't, I'm not talking about the size of the population. I'm talking about like what the thing is for legal purposes. I, to quote myself, I wrote a piece called Psychedelic Markets of the Future. It's on the Chakruna website. If you go to my blog, um, I probably have a, I, my link to that article is 2018, somewhere in there, I guess, in which I make the case that that's, that's where I, I walk through the exercise and say, that's what these things are fundamentally for legal purposes. You may have a small market. With the right messaging, you could have a very large market. Um, so, I mean, for that, for me, that's not what's, I mean, it's, it's relevant in the sense that as the laws change and the messaging changes and the public image changes, you could have a great increase in, in in consumer size. I mean, the consumer size for acid in the 1960s was like zero to a hundred in five seconds in a, in a sense. So, which is potentially problematic in many ways. I have grave concerns about where psychedelics could go, which is why I think we need a psychedelic law. Well, but see, I, I, what, what really resonates for me, I think, is a combination of what everybody's saying here, including you, which is that psychedelics are out there. They're not going to ever have the same type of universal appeal uh, that something like marijuana has or you know, alcohol or things like that. And, and as we say, maybe for the better. But for the people who like to do it, they really like to do it. And I think the biggest thing for them is I'm not asking to be able to like have a nice clean dispensary. I, if I want my psychedelics, I know where I can go get them. I just want everybody to leave me alone, right? I don't want the cops to be. So if, if society takes the position that, hey, look, there's a little bit of medical benefit to it here so we can decriminalize it and the cops can say, fine, we're not going to deal with it anymore for right now. And the people who want to do it, we, you don't necessarily have to be interested necessarily in growing the user base if it if it organically grows that's fine but if it doesn't even those people who just like to do it once a week or once a month or once a year whatever it is i think there's a there's a much better feeling of uh, you know security that hey i'm not i'm not really an outlier with this anymore you know generally speaking society is saying do your own thing just don't cause any trouble and have fun a hundred percent, absolutely. So, Larry, you're you're speaking about the decriminalization side, like part on the spectrum, and and I think you're you're articulating the general idea, and I'll like tweak it a little bit and spin it back, which is that it's it's essentially empirically has been a self-regulating market. Um, I'm not aware you don't have you don't have like. 
okay, you had the, you know, acid was the most dangerous thing in the United States in the 19, late 1960s, per Richard Nixon. You can imagine societal transformation. There's like a lot of cultural transformation, like in a very short amount of time. I mean, impacted all facets of society because it acts on consciousness and consciousness is the necessary predicate for everything else. Um, so when you tweak society, necessarily cause a chain reaction and ripples out. Um, but you don't now have this marker of like, uh, it's not opioids. Uh, it's just not, it's, it's not, it's not crack. Um, but there are people using it. So in and of itself, it doesn't generate a lot of, it doesn't seem, I'm not a sociologist here or whatever, it doesn't seem to generate the externalities that other, even alcohol, that, that the other substances do. Um, that being the case, right, people know how to use it. And actually, Larry, sort of the end of the piece that I wrote, Psychedelic Marks of the Future, I do a, a discuss the um, Uniao de Vegetal case, I'm going to mangling the pronunciation, uh, from 2006, in which the court basically, and I mean, this was most interest to me, essentially recognized that in a, in a non-medical setting, a psychedelic substance can be safe. You don't actually need, according to my read of that case, ultimately the, the you know, critical point is that the same substance is treated by different standards depending on the, the use. If it's in a, sacri- in a ceremonial setting, the court is willing to say as a matter, as a, for the safety standard that it can be administered safely. But it won't, it won't take it out of, it hasn't been taken out of schedule one, which is high risk. High, it, risk it can't even be, it can't be administered safely under medical supervision. So, um, uh, so there's, there, okay, I mean, there's a different, there's a different um, risk profile. Um, you, you, can, you see implicitly that the market can regulate, the dis- demand side of the market can regulate itself, essentially, implicitly. Um, and a decriminalization approach is recognized. I mean, de- listen, decriminalization decrim- is insane. So, you know, let's just start at that starting point. Okay, let me dive in here because decriminalization suggests the ability for people to be able to go out and obtain these substances and use them. Correct. But in order to go out and obtain them, you have to buy them from someone. Jim. Right. He just said Schedule 1. Are we talking 280E here for this stuff? Oh, yeah, for sure. So, you know, if I want to become, you know, uh, uh, I don't know about a license, but like a, an herbal seller and, you know, the government's going to leave me alone necessarily, but I can go out and get different types of, of, of substances like this and sell them because my local community says it's okay for me, the IRS could come knocking on my door one day to do an audit and say, hey, we're here to tell you about something called 280E. Well, that assumes they filed the tax return in the first place. Okay, fine. Good point. Valid. But for purposes of this discussion, I'm going to say yes. You know, they're, they're, they're just radical enough to go ahead and do that. Well, of course, 280 says Schedule 1 and 2. Right. I was going to say, the whole reason I asked the question of no in the first place, I kind of went down this rabbit hole, is, you know, there's a huge difference between decriminalization and the companies that he's talking about that are doing public offerings right now and are raising hundreds of millions of dollars in this. And I look at a lot of those companies and what they're trying to accomplish and think, okay, this is um, the same thing that I heard back in 2006, 2007 with companies saying, okay, let's start getting off the ground. And by 2011 or 12, you had all these publicly traded cannabis companies that were coming out that were only medical. We're just here for medical. We'll never do anything else. Look, we wear lab coats. 
And it was nonsense back then, it's nonsense now, right? For all those companies that swore they were only going to be medical and they were only doing it because they were trying to develop relationships with research universities and they were trying to, you know, cure all sorts of indications. Look, it was completely fictitious when they made those claims at the time. And I think it's completely fictitious a lot of these companies are making these claims at this time. So all these guys are going out there and saying, we're trying to open 50 clinics or 100 clinics, and we're doing it in a way where we're going to be only testing uh, um, analogs of, of DMT or analogs of, um, of um, psilocybin or you know, pick, pick the drug of choice and saying you know, we're going after very specific PTSD and other things like that. Look, if you want to tell me you're going after decriminalization and you're trying to gain market share, cool. But let's be honest with who we are and what we're trying to do. And I'm not saying there's no efficacious qualities to psychedelics. I'm a firm believer that there are. But I, I, do, I do have a, a tough time with people that go out there under false pretense to try to raise capital. A lot to say about that. There's, there's a, lot, a lot to unpack there. So I'm going to say that legalization actually is an umbrella term. I don't know if I'm an outlier here in saying this, and maybe others have, I don't know, but anyway, from my perspective and my ignorance of having read all the material there is out there, I'm going to say that legalization is a, is, a, is, a, is a spectrum, and decriminalization is a point on that spectrum. Commercialization is another point way, way, way down the ways on the spectrum, and this is actually one of the things I discussed in my, that article, Psychedelic Markets of the Future. Um, and you have other, you have other places on, on that spectrum. Um, there's decriminalization of the consumer, decriminalization of consumption, which is, that's the term people have been using generally. And then you have decriminalization of the supply side. And, and drug policy, listen, people use the term drug war, people use the term war on drugs. There is no such thing. That's done. That was like a different period of time. That's not the terminology. Those aren't the thought constructs that support um, prohibition. My perspective is that it's actually medicalization is the fundamental foundational point of prohibition because you have criminal prohibition and you have medical use as an exception to criminal prohibition. Once you get into the supplied side, that's where things get weird because who's doing the supplying and what are their interests? How are they covering their costs? How are they getting something on top of their costs? How are they making a profit off of it? Or maybe they aren't for profit. Maybe they're not for profit. Does that actually work? I don't know. Are they small, informal, voluntary associations? Maybe. Are they collectives? Maybe. I don't know. But that's, and that's why, I should say, where a lot of the action is, in my assessment, um, is in the small part of this space, and these are attorneys doing the work, who are talking about the nature of the, of the market. And in a sense, I quote myself again, a lot of this is about market design. And that, that will be a matter of statute. You know? That will be what kinds of entities are permitted to manufacture slash cultivate, distribute to a consumer. Call me an outlier. I used to use my psychedelics to get high and listen to Grateful Dead or listen to uh, Pink Floyd or listen to other music. And uh, nothing I liked more than walking into a concert, dropping a tab of acid and watching the world. Dude, I, I think that the only entities that should be allowed to manufacture and distribute psychedelics are record labels. Just keep it to that. You your own branded acid, you know. Who was it, Rob, who's saying, hey, I'll watch the world and melt with you or whatever? Right. That's pretty much the, the concept every time you went into one of those dead shows of if it was the right one. 
And um, Noah, forgive us for just one minute here. Uh, please don't go away. Um, we're we're starting to run a little bit short on time, at least as far as uh, Jim goes today. He he's got some uh, some hot important meeting that he's got to, to pop out of here for in a few minutes. So we just want to switch over really quickly to the musical side because uh, that's always so much fun for us to talk about as well. Um, so much going on with the dead. Uh, so much going on, you know, with live music again and uh, starting to come on board. Hard to know where to start, but, uh, you know, Rob, you and I were talking earlier today, and uh, why don't you kind of lead us into where you were going a little bit, talking about the shows from the Sam Boyd Silver Bowl back in April of 91. Yeah, I mean, some of the some terrific shows that happened uh, on April 27th and April 28th of 1991. It was... Um, uh, Santana playing with the dead, opening with the dead, and then uh, coming out and playing. So it's a great segue, you know, going from where Noah was talking about with psychedelics and kind of wrestling with psychedelics and music. If you want to talk about, you know, two legendary artists that were, you know, Bill Graham's two favorite artists to uh, to bring up in the in the early '70s and kind of staples of the Fillmore, uh, Santana and the Grateful Dead were definitely it. And obviously, there's a great deal of collaboration. They, you know, shared many bills together over over the years, both um, at festivals and also, you know, kind of on the Fillmore stage. But uh, that was the first time in the 1990s they got together, and I think uh, if anyone was at those shows, they'll remember just an absolutely titanic bird song that was on the 28th, which is now oh, yeah. officially uh, 30 years ago today, um, which is wow. just a, an exceptionally, exceptionally fun thing to listen to. And as I remember, I was relatively high in psychedelics. Uh, yes, 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 we were. And then... Uh... It was the first time I had ever gone out to Las Vegas to see the dead. I know they had played a couple of casino shows before that. Um, but, you know, to be there with that many deadheads, you know, you talk about like a group psychedelic experience and of all places, Las Vegas, Nevada. But the best part about it is when you're in the Sam Boyd Silver Bowl, you're kind of you're you're as far away from the strip as you can be. You're out like in the middle of Nevada. I mean, there's nothing there. There's sand, and from the from the seats in the uh, theater, you're looking out and you're seeing some pretty awesome sights. And as I recall, one of the nights there was a big uh, thunderstorm off or lightning from far away. You could watch, you know, and everything. And and then all of a sudden the show's over, and here we all are, you know, totally loaded up from this dead show, and we all go back to the strip. And now at two o'clock in the morning, there's thirty thousand totally lit deadheads walking up and down the strip. And from some people's perspective, you know, maybe it's not that much different from a normal Saturday night in Las Vegas, but um, it was pretty cool. I had a great time. Psychedelics were tailor-made for, uh, for for Las Vegas. You know, there's nothing better than walking the strip and seeing all the lights and everything else that's going on. And I'm not an introverted um, psychedelics user. When I used psychedelics, I was a very extroverted psychedelics user, and I loved being in the old kind of the mix. I, I didn't. As I said to you earlier, Larry, I never subscribed to the Timothy Leary, you know, um, controlled environment uh, LSDs. I subscribed to the Ken Kesey, let's go out and freak everyone out um, side of the LSDs. So if you're going to use psychedelics, you know, why not just um, go for it and embrace it and just let people know that, um, you know, you're, 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 <laughs> uh, you're actively using a psychedelic um, and you're going to have fun with it. And for me, it was like running around the desert or running around like cool outdoor areas or playing in the redwoods or doing other things that got me out and... and, and in the uh, woods and rather than you know sitting there reading be here now like that was never like this like ram das like studying of like you know like oh look at this felt you know um poster or psychedelic like, black light poster like those people used to drive me nuts they would want to sit in place and be like hey man look at this and stare really hard I'm like no i like i want to go out and listen to music and play so uh so las vegas well, is a, it was a pretty good psychedelic playground oh yeah well 
And of course, this this just ties into what you and I were also talking about a little bit earlier. If you want to talk about that in Las Vegas, you have to talk about fear and loathing in Las Vegas because that was the whole concept of that book was I'm going to go to Las Vegas and this town is already so crazy that I can be even crazier and nobody's going to tell the difference. I can drop in on a conference full of law enforcement officers from around the country loaded up on about 12 different types of drugs and to them, I'm just another crazy guy in Las Vegas, and that's it. Kind of gives you good cover. I like that. Yes. Well, I wasn't at the first year with Santana, but I believe that of the five years they did those Silver Bowl shows, I was at three of them, and that's what I always loved about Las Vegas. In small town America, there's nothing to do after a Grateful Dead show. In Vegas, the party's just getting started. Midnight, two o'clock in the morning. And Noah will appreciate this story. One time, I was high on, on psychedelics after a dead show, and I sat down at a blackjack table and played third base there, last position before the dealer, and I was absolutely clairvoyant. I busted that dealer so many times, the entire Slots of Fun casino was cheering for me. That'll happen. All of a sudden, you know how to count into a deck of cards. You don't know why, but you just can't. It speaks into uh, efficacy of psychedelics, uh, if you want to talk about, you know, you know, the efficacy side of the, of the question, you make a lot of money off of it. Until the casino figures it out and says, no, no, you're cheating, right? Because anytime the casino loses, you got to be cheating. So I'm sure for that, they'll be like, no, no mental telepathy in here, pal. Take your, take your drugs outside. Interestingly enough, if we all remember back to those days, at the time in Nevada, a single hit of LSD was a 10-year sentence. It was a zero-tolerance state. So it was terrifying going into that town with psychedelics, you know, with drugs in general. But uh, I don't think it stopped too many people. It just gave you pause for concern as to you know what you're going to do and where you hid your things when you walked in and out of the venue. But uh, but but Nevada was a scary place back in 1991. Well, it was still it was a scary place in 2006. We were there for the first Vegas, and uh, one of the late night shows was Phil. Oh no, Trey sitting in with Phil and friends over at one of the the big casino auditoriums. I don't remember which one it was. But we went in there and literally people were sitting in there and you could see people lining up their joints and one by one, the cops were coming up and pulling them out, not taking the joint away from them, grabbing them. They were gone. They were tossed out for smoking their marijuana. And that always just struck me as such an anomaly that when you're in a town where anything goes, they were they were like policing marijuana at a concert like I'd never seen anywhere else. Another story of Las Vegas uh, and drugs is the maids in the hotels. If you left your psychedelics uh, tucked under your bed, the maids would turn you in. Well, because they get paid. They get they get part of the fine that the hotel charges you for smoking in the room. They come in and they that, that's always the tricky part, right? They, they'll search around for those ashes lying there and then they'll turn you in. So I ran the VIP area for that first Vegas, Larry. So I had the entire area next to the Sam Boyd Silver Bowl as my own kind of section. We were there. We were VIP. I was uh, I was your host. So uh, and, and going back to what Noah said earlier, I ended up eating a um, a cannabis edible not by on purpose but by accident. I walked into the production trailer and one of the guys was like, "Hey, have you had any of these cookies yet?" And I said, "I haven't." So I took two of them and ate them. And about half an hour later, I realized that um, you know I was. I was definitely really really high to the point that i had to grab my uh, my co-vip host and say hey man like i need to take half an hour you know he's like what's up i'm like i got dosed i'm like i'm not sure with what he's like you didn't eat the cookies in the production trailer did you I'm like, yeah i did and he's like yeah those are you know heavily laden um you know pot cookies so uh i ended up um having an out-of-body experience um for about half an hour as about as high as i've ever been including like higher than most psychedelics and ended up um having to hide <laughs> hide in a, in a, um, a kid's like play area 
where uh, no one could see me behind a fence in like a sandbox for a while to to start coming down on that. So that was my experience first Vegas. Uh, yeah. It was a lot a lot of fun. I was there also. I had a press pass along with my uh, then sixteen uh, year old son Matt. And uh, that picture that Larry has seen in my barn of my son Matt talking to Trey—that's a picture I took in the press tent at the first Vegas. Yep, no, it was it was great. We were all there. It happened to be my birthday weekend, and that same night uh, the Cardinals won the World Series. So we were all sitting in the Palms watching them win the World Series in the Nine Steakhouse with Pete Rose. And he was telling us all sorts of stories about back in the day. The Cardinals win the World Series. We had a bottle of champagne come to the table, and then we just went off and saw great live music. It was wonderful. Who, who did he have his money on? <laughs> um, uh, just really quickly here, uh, we are reaching a point where our co-host Jim Marty has to hop off. Jim, we're going to let you go. Uh, yes, I have to go because uh, I have a musical connection. Tonight is the 80th anniversary of the opening of Red Rocks. And that's why I'm jumping off now to, to head up there. And uh, as a commemoration, the tickets tonight are 80 cents. Beautiful. We'll have a great time and enjoy the rocks. Thank you to the Army Corps of Engineers. Yes, the, the uh, Civilian Conservation, the CCC, did the renovation work up there along with the Army Corps of Engineers. So, yes, um, great work they did. Talk to everybody soon. Great. Thanks, Jim. We'll see you next week. So, Larry, continuing on, let's, let's um, you know, talk about the fact that uh, you know, Santana being at those shows was, uh, you know, if we want to keep the theme psychedelic, I don't think there's too many guitar players that had more of an impact on you know psychedelic rock than uh, than Carlos Santana and possibly Garcia as well. I know that Noah you know would, would jump in there and say Pink Floyd as well. Uh, Jimmy and Jimmy Hendrix, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. hands down. Uh, well, okay, fine. But uh, but Best during I that agree. period, yeah, I mean there was a there was a handful that were pushing um, pushing music to to new heights with you know kind of the idea of of psychedelics in mind as they were writing that music or as they were performing that music knowing that a lot of their audience was, uh, was going to be relatively high and not just high on cannabis. And part of it was you're just talking about two guys who just basically played the guitar better than anybody else doing it together. And Rob was kind enough earlier uh, today to share a link with me, which I'm going to let you, him tell you guys about because I got about halfway through it and then I had to stop to, to log on for the show and that's where I'm going back to when we're done. Uh, but it's just amazing to see these two, I mean, really, guitar legends just... Tell them, Rob. You, you'll tell it better than I will. August 2nd of 1989, uh, at the Biltmore, uh, Santana was playing, and Garcia sat in as a guest and uh, played a couple tunes. But for anyone out there that's a fan of both Garcia's playing and Santana's playing, it's such a, uh, an intimate, small audience, and it was um, basically the two of them just trading licks for about 10 minutes, back and forth on a song called Get Uppa. And uh, I think they played a couple other tunes as well. But when they first come on, anyone that you know wants to see the link, uh, just, you know, Google Santana Garcia Biltmore, and you'll find it relatively quickly, and then get to about the 12-minute mark, and it is just um, a straight fire of guitar lick trading uh, between two of the all-time greats in the business, so definitely worth checking out. Okay. Now, let's, uh, since we always like to include our guests in the musical discussion, uh, uh, before we were getting on, we were talking with Noah uh, about Pink Floyd, a band that uh, uh, he enjoys, I enjoy, I know uh, Rob's a big fan as well, and I think that uh, you know, Pink Floyd really you know, is a band that, although I don't know that people would necessarily call them a jam band per se, they, they certainly have the jam band characteristic, and when they go out there and start playing, they, they just go off into another space. 
but almost the antithesis, Larry. Like the big difference between Pink Floyd and, and the Grateful Dead is that um, their music was very, very calculated. They spent a great deal of time in the studio to make sure that they got every note perfect. And right. when they performed it, they performed it note for note for how they did it on the album, and they're very, very true to their craft in that way. So they created something that was you know relatively psychedelic, but they also did it in a very um, uh, a different manner than the Grateful Dead did. There was no jazzy freeform to what they were doing. It was um, it was very much orchestrated. Well, exactly, and that's actually the interesting part about it. You state that perfectly because it was almost as though they were trying to compose jams right they were they were they were they were they were actually trying to put the music together and, and they with their studio stuff even you know there was a lot of free fleet free flow of the music in ways that you didn't hear in other bands perform at the time you know the fact that i mean you know dark side of the moon basically plays like you could just play it all the way through it's a it it, it it's really that kind of a composition and it's just fascinating to me noah what's uh, tell us about some of your favorite pink floyd stuff so, I mean, the truth to tell is it's, a, it's actually kind of a quest of like what kind of music will work for an acid trip. And I mean, I mean, my sense is, except for, except for like, you know, the big scream, but uh, well, no, you know, careful, you know, careful with that axe, Eugene, is all good until you get to the point where the guy like, you know, the scream comes. That song is about LSD. That song is about Sid right. Barrett's uh, relationship with LSD. Okay, but I was all right. Well, that's you know, that if, if that's where you want to go on your acid trip, then I, I, I think I, and I gotta say, it's like it's kind of like borderline irresponsible to do that to people, perhaps if they don't know that's coming. But, but, but set the controls for the heart of the sun, yeah. I mean, axe warnings, uh, but but set the controls for the heart of the sun. I mean, I wish that you know, you could just do that on a loop and have that go for an hour, it'll be like great, you know, for me anyway. I think one of the interesting things about Florida is the early days, you know, like two albums specifically, Saucer of Full of Secrets and Piper at the Gates of Dawn were, you know, really meant to be as psychedelic as you could make an album. But that was kind of like the, um, you know, the uh, San Francisco post-Summer of Love music that would come in that was, you know, done in a very contrived way to try to, you know, sort of freak people out. And I don't think that Floyd really found where they were trying to go until probably like, you know, 70 or 71, where it just came much more naturally. It wasn't like, you know, contrived to try to, you know, elicit a certain response uh, until they, you know, got to the point of creating masterpieces like Dark Side or I'd argue Animals as, as my favorite of just, you know, top to bottom, just an incredible album uh, where a lot, of the, a lot of the sort of psychedelia was just natural without, without forcing it. Well, isn't that a lot, not unlike... Um anthem of the sun and oxamoxa right i mean two albums and if you listen to them i mean they're very they're very contrived in the way they're put together and, and they do it but they were the launching pads that eventually got them to creating american beauty and working man's dead which are you know in their own right you know beautiful albums and and, and maybe you know for a lot of these musicians it was it was that you know early more psychedelic period that really kind of brought it all together and helped them coalesce into you know becoming what they did and we can all talk about the 27 curse forever, but since Noah mentioned Jimmy, uh, you know, it's just, it, it's really almost devastating to think about how much we missed in terms of what he would have contributed to the musical world and whether he might have ever himself kind of taken a step off of the heavy duty psychedelic path and gone into the more, you know, American beauty creative type of path, if you will. I think he would have, he would have created genres that we can't even imagine. Yep. Yep. I, I would agree. Yeah, I don't think there's any way he can be that talented. I think both him and Dwayne, uh, you know, as far as losing guitar players early, uh, both those guys, I think, were just at the beginning of what would have been just exceptional careers. If you think about, like, the longevity of other guys from that, that period that were that good, like what Clapton did in his career and how different he was, you know, at age 45 as he was at age 27. 
I, you know, not seeing Dwayne Allman will may very well always be my biggest rock and roll regret. You know, he's, he's an exceptional musician. Um, we were lucky to have him for as long as we did. And the fact that his music, you know, remained and, you know, and, and really, you know, although maybe this is appropriate to be discussing along with this topic, but, you know, who's to say that, you know, Derek Trucks isn't, you know, channeling a little bit of Dwayne Allman in him and, uh, you know, doesn't have a little bit of that, uh, you know, reincarnation flowing in him because, Quite frankly, you know, when you hear him get up and, you know, when, and when uh, they had Trey playing with them at Lockett and they were, you know, they were covering Layla, it was hard not to think that that wasn't Dwayne Allman up there, you know, playing those slide licks the way he was just ripping them off. Yeah, I think that uh, I, I would agree. I don't think anyone else can do it quite the way he can. I think that when you're raised by the Allman brothers, essentially, uh, you're, you're going to take away a lot of what Dwayne had. But Derek is a... Uh, it's so funny. Trey actually refers to to Derek Trucks as the best guitar player in the world right now, and uh, you know that that's pretty high praise coming from a person I consider to be one of the top ten that's out there playing the guitar right now. Absolutely, no question about it. I think uh, I think that's very true. So Noah, what's next in the world of uh, uh, you know psychedelics? You know, you and I uh, were very lucky. Uh, uh, we first got to know each other, Noah and I working with the Hoban Law Group, uh, Noah coming in as uh, one of the uh, New York Council. Um, and, and as a result, and, and one of the things that we've always talked about, uh, and we talked about this with Bob when he was on the phone, was that Bob was such a visionary uh, and still is a visionary in terms of being, you know, really that much farther ahead than everybody else in, in talking about what you're talking about, recognizing that there really is law here and there's law that's going to have to be addressed and people are going to have to face it. Uh, you know, and manage it. And now, you know, here you are kind of taking it on to the next level. And, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of like going from the wild west, which is starting to get tamed and you're going even more wild west than you were before. Um, you know, in a, in a, in a, two questions, you know, realistically, where do you see this all going in a couple of years and where would you like to see it go in a couple of years? I, I got to smile. Yeah. I'm going to say they got to be about, they got to be the same thing because, um, if anybody's going anywhere, we need a lot of work because, I mean, I may sound dramatic, but if I say it seems like the ship is breaking up, um, I don't know if that means anything to people, if they kind of like get where I'm going with this, but there's like, you know, the whole, the whole system is quivering, potentially, if you look around the world. Um, we have, we're told anyway, and some of us may feel it, that we're kind of confronting a few different kind of existential crises for like Homo sapiens sapien. And there are those who believe that psychedelics could play some part in getting us, I'm going to paraphrase, I'm going to use my own terms, getting us to a, a happy future as opposed to an unhappy future or a relatively or happier future where like things don't go as bad as they could go. Uh, and, and I mean, I'm one of those people, um, with a whole lot of caveats, which we can discuss, you know, whenever, um, um, I want to see, and like, maybe to answer your question more directly, I believe that pluralism is in the market is necessary. You need a free market and you need a free market in the sense that people aren't getting in each other's way and people who want to have a psychedelic experience in a medicalized setting, a medicalized product, they should be able to do so. And people who want to have a psychedelic experience in a natural environment under their own 
auspices of autonomy do, based on their own experience level and their understanding and their discretion, they should be able to do that. And we don't want, I don't want to have anybody in the sector controlling the sector through intellectual property rights. And I don't want people who are, you know, the, the, con the terminology entheogen versus psychedelic is something we didn't discuss, but it's, for me, it's extremely significant. I also don't want people saying, well, you know, Western science is like, I don't know about this science thing. Like, who needs science? I'm not saying that they're actually saying that. That's a great reductionist approach to what is maybe present to some extent in the decriminalization side, but ideas morph. And any idea, in my sense, I'm a poli-sci undergraduate, and I'm also, I'd like to think, a student of life, that you, you, send the, you send the stone rolling and it kicks other stones and you don't know where those stones are going to go. So um, a, I have a great fear of what I call a psychedelic Pol Pot who will say, you know, I am, I am the messenger. I am the one who will heal you. And anyone who tells you otherwise is an enemy. And I have many students and my students contend with the students of the other false messengers. So there's all kinds of weird places things can go. And so we all need to do a lot of thinking. And uh, this is why I think the lawyers are especially tasked, and it's especially critical for lawyers to be in this space, to ground people. And, you know, and um, <clears throat> so I guess in a, in a, in a very crystallized uh, expression, <clears throat> excuse me, I would like to make sure there's pluralism in the market. Um, very highly technical, perhaps. Um, I would love to see um, autonomy, local autonomy, to the greatest extent possible. I would, I think, I, I personally believe that ultimately the only way this is going to work is if psychedelics are introduced to societies and communities on their own terms, um, with their own paradigms, uh, and not have some anything imposed on the outside. I mean, you do have to have some kind of fundamental societal norms. Um, that's, again, another question as to, you know, basic principles of like human rights values. And you're going to have, you know, you're going to have like separation of, you're going to have establishment clause, separation of church and state issues as the idea of a sacramental, spiritual, religious use of psychedelics evolves. Um, I would like to see the sector manifest as to what it purports to be, which is a alternative to the last, like, whatever, I don't know, 10,000 years of human society or something. And, and there's a, a caveat on that as well. But we need truth in advertising, because if the movement does not manifest its goals, then we're just a bunch of fraudsters. We're saying, you know, and we're, we're selling, we're spelling uh, like spiritual quick fixes. We're spell, uh, selling... Now, I mean, God forbid, who knows what could be in the pharmaceutical sector on the medical side of the market. Um, and, and another, and I guess in the other piece, whether the cave, one, of the, one of the caveats is this is a mass, essentially, no matter what the FDA trial, whatever comes out of the FDA trials, this is a mass, mass experiment. This is a mass, it's not even a clinical trial. This is just a mass societal experiment in greatly, potentially, greatly increasing the aggregate number, aggregate number of people who are using psychedelics or will have used psychedelics. But when has this ever happened? I mean, my understanding of the paradigm of the, of the, of the ancient uses, of the traditional uses, 
it was a very, if you're talking about a sacrament, a ceremonial environment, you're talking about something highly controlled. You're talking about something presumably embedded into a value system. And you may be talking about a situation, my understanding from what I've read, is was only, only the, the shaman, the intermediary with the spirit world who was, who was using the psych, psychedelic substance. So when we start talking about having, like, opening the floodgates Oh, I don't know what happens. Who knows what kind of stuff comes out? We we saw what happened in a small way into the 1960s with 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 transformation. And and I'm gonna throw another piece of this in. I, I'm not gonna speak. I'm not gonna purport to speak knowledgeably about this, but I think you can pick up enough little indicators that we're looking at. I want people to be free to use psychedelics and not be wired. I don't want to have a situation in which the the mental health intervention of choice is an implant of some kind. Gives you a little electrical stimulus just at the right time and the right amount and it kind of like balances you out. Um, you know, brain interfaces. You know, hey, listen, if that's the way the market's going to go, first of all, <laughs> I think people might want to be like careful about that stuff and like think through where it could go. But I want to make sure that psychedelics are still in that market. I don't want to have, I don't want to have the device side of the FDA obliterate the psychedelic the, the, the psychedelic zone of, of the FDA and by extension other parts because you're not gonna you know you, you're gonna have I mean who knows what happens to the FDA if this this paradigm evolves it's, it's you're 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 changing paradigms of consciousness you're introducing a new a new paradigm of consciousness that like water doesn't abide by normal uh, you know doesn't respect boundaries um, so, where I'd like it to go, where it could go, you know, obviously anywhere. It's 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 an amazing thing, and um, can't thank you enough, Noah, for for your time today, and and you know, agreeing to come on, and and you know, even going a little bit longer than we anticipated. But quite frankly, this is just too fascinating not to take advantage of, and we have somebody with your background and knowledge. Just really quickly, if any of our listeners want to get a hold of you, how do they do it? Uh, well, first, thanks for thanks very much for the opportunity to speak. I love to discuss this stuff. Um, uh, people want to connect. Uh, they can they can message me through my blog, psychedeliclaw.com. That's a New Amsterdam psychedelic law. Um, uh, you can you can get to me. Just go to my LinkedIn profile. There's there's some websites that are eventually going to come into being, but I'm people. I connect with people through LinkedIn. Well, wonderful. Once again, Noah Potter, thank you so much. Um, and Rob, before we sign off, I do have to say, as Noah was sitting there mentioning and talking about the whole religious experience side of it, the other thing that you and I talked about uh, is that uh, Tuesday night uh, will be the 49th anniversary from the Europe 72 tour of the uh, Grateful Dead show in Paris, notable for its its epic dark star. And I think if you have to talk about you know, a quote-unquote like religious-type experience, a place to be and uh, a song to be united around, be really, really hard-pressed to find something too much better than that. Would you agree? I would absolutely agree. And I think if there's any advice we have for our audience is maybe take 250 micrograms of LSD and uh, sit back in their house and uh, listen to that thing in its entirety because uh, you won't regret it. And if it bleeds over into the next night or the night after that, yeah, you could do worse. But, uh, but you know, get real high and listen to some Grateful Dead. Yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, and of all the Europe 72 tour shows, uh, and there's so many of them, this this one just really stands out. That The Dark Star is so epic uh, that a few years ago on National Record Store Day, the Dead released a vinyl album, both sides of it, which was the entire Dark Star from start to finish. 
you know, it, it kind of reminded me of, um, uh, you know, Jethro Tull, thick as a brick, right? You know, just just one song, start to finish, all the way through, and you got to flip the album in the middle of it. Uh, and the only thing that interludes is you know about two minutes of drums, which is just enough to kind of bring you back to normal sanity before they take off again for another twenty minutes of who knows where. So, yeah, it is good stuff. It is good stuff. Maybe one of these days we'll convert Noah. <laughs> I, I'm, I keep hearing about Dark Star. I may just need to like try it out and just you know. Uh, give it a shot, right. like focus, and who knows, who knows. Write a paper on that. Well, it actually was. I, I read a story years ago that they, uh, an elementary school teacher in Portland, Oregon, went to her kindergarten class, and for art class one day, she put on Dark Star, and she gave all of them, uh, you know, art supplies, and said, just write down, you know, whatever you see, whatever you feel, whatever you're hearing, and they list that they show the pictures that these kids drew and the and the things that they talked about and. It was just like they were tripping, you know, and, and one of the things we used to say when we were tripping is, oh yeah, when you're kids, you trip all the time, you know, you, you just don't realize it when you're an adult, you know, you grow up, you need to take the psychedelics to take you back there. And maybe there's some truth to that, you know, cause these kids were, you know, we're, we're, we're hearing things in the music that was just astounding, you know, for kids their age to be picking up on and everything. So it's all pretty cool. Very, very cool stuff. And this was a lot of fun, Noah. Thanks a lot for coming on. We really enjoyed having you on. It's one of my favorite conversations. I don't talk psychedelics too much anymore because I'm so um, canvas-centric. Listen, but, hit, uh, hit, hit me up. We'll talk again. Definitely. Beautiful. Definitely. Rob, what do we got coming up on, on Dead Stuff on future shows? Oh, wow. Uh, I think uh, we're going to talk about Bill Kreutzman, I think, next week. Uh, he was born All right. on May the 7th. So, uh, 75th you know, birthday. Yeah, it's his big birthday. We're going to talk about what he's up to these days with Billy and the Kids and some of the other stuff he's doing, obviously, with uh, with Dead & Co. Uh, talk about some of our favorite jams, which is you know tough to, to pick out as uh, drummers <laughs> don't get too many jams, but the Grateful Dead drummers certainly got their fair share. They so did. We can talk about uh, you know some of the, the greatest things he did as a drummer, but... Um, that should be a, a pretty fun show too and, and I know we've got some really good guests coming up I know we've got my buddy Alex Beard coming up on the 12th of May uh, for all of you out there in the art world that know Alex's work his studio down in New Orleans um, we'll uh, discuss some of his art and some of his uh, craziness of, of being an artist in New York and in New Orleans um, so we've got lots of fun stuff coming up Larry well you're right in fact next week uh, we have uh, a very special guest uh, a good friend of mine and a true uh uh, a cannabis business person, Andy Greenberg from uh, the Bay Area, who's a co-owner of Society Jane, uh, which is a uh, a group out there that caters to the women uh, cannabis users of the world. Uh, besides being a, a longtime friend, uh, way back from summer camp days and college days and uh, a companion uh, with the group at many a dead show along the way, uh, Andy has the distinct honor of being the first guest ever on the Deadhead Cannabis Show uh, way, way back when, uh, when uh, Dan decided that Jim and I were mature enough to finally start having some guests. And, uh, and she was great. And I, I couldn't be more excited to have her back uh, with all of this stuff going on. Uh, I think you'll find, you know, what she and her partner, uh, Sharon Krinsky, have done is just uh, nothing short of amazing in terms of building up this, this women's cannabis market in the Bay Area. Uh, and it's very, very exciting stuff. So um, once again, to my co-host, Rob, thank you as always. And uh, Look forward to talking to you again next week. Noah Potter, thank you very much for your time. Uh, Jim Marty, who hopped off a few minutes earlier to head over to Red Rocks, where I'm sure he'll have a great time tonight. Uh, this is Larry Mishkin of the Hoban Law Group. Uh, once again, thanks, everyone, for listening. We will look forward to having you on our show next week. Uh, be safe and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, this is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire, and I'm the host of the Terps in the City podcast. I am a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. I'm also a hemp farmer, and I've been recently named to the list of High Times Magazine's top 100 influencers in cannabis. I'm inviting you to follow me along my journey as I move back to New York to support the adult use market there. You're going to get a chance to listen to conversations with some of my friends along the way. I look forward to seeing you at Terps in the City.